This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tens of thousands of Coloradans are waiting to see if their health insurance company will offer plans on the state's exchange next year. They include retiree Darla Volgamore in Delta County. She's 64, diabetic, and struggled to find a plan that would cover her pre-existing condition. Yes, I was very thankful. I was able to get insurance that I could afford And she got it through Anthem, which is the only carrier in 14 Western Slope counties that offers health plans through the state's exchange. Anthem and other insurers have until Monday to tell the state if they'll stick around. But why are there so few options on the state's exchange in some places? And what will happen if carriers pull out? Caroline Pearson is with the nonpartisan healthcare consulting firm Avalier Health. And Caroline, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. When you look across the country, are a lot of companies leaving the health insurance markets created by Obamacare right now? Unfortunately, yes. We're definitely anticipating that there will be fewer insurers that are participating on the Obamacare exchanges in 2018. We've already had a number of large national insurers pull out of the markets altogether. Others have signaled that they're still making decisions. So while that's not universal, we do have a few health plans saying that they're going to expand participation. But by and large, we expect there to be fewer choices next year. All right. And Anthem, all eyes are on that company here in Colorado. It just pulled out of the exchange in Ohio, leaving about 18 counties there without an insurer. What happens when insurers pull out of the marketplaces? I mean, do you see other companies backfilling or states finding other ways to give people options? Sure. Well, unfortunately, the uh, Affordable Care Act doesn't actually have a solution for this scenario. There's no legal mechanism uh, to ensure that there are plans available in every county. We've seen a variety of responses from the states. The most common is really for insurance regulators to go to other health plans participating in the state and try to encourage them to expand their footprint, step into those counties where other health insurers have exited. And that's been pretty successful in previous years, as well as in some states this year. We've seen uh, some other states taking more radical approaches. Uh, Iowa proposed a uh, major change. They're going to try to overhaul their system before next year to try to save participation. New York is thinking about uh, trying to link participation to other programs like Medicaid or perhaps even the state employee plans. So states are trying to be creative about this, but there's no obvious solution at this time. Yes. So I'd like to hone in just a bit on New York and this idea of essentially telling insurers, if you pull out of the exchange and the individual plans, we aren't going to allow you to take part in Medicaid, uh, thus shrinking essentially your client base in a particular state. We asked our governor, John Hickenlooper, if he was considering something like that in Colorado. Well, we have we certainly talked about that. You as, have? Yes, absolutely. As, as a way to try to provide motivation that, that more insurers cover, you know, all parts of the state, or at least a number of parts of the state. And why haven't you decided to go down that avenue? Well, because there are a lot of complications. There are pros and cons. Are you going to ask every insurer that does Medicaid to cover all parts of the state? And we asked him if there are other options on the table, and indeed there are. So here are some of the other choices that he's looking at. I do believe that we should hold ourselves to a level where every part of the state has some level of coverage. I I think one backup possibility would be to try and find a, you know, a nonprofit provider that would come in with some incentives from the government. 
you know, have Kaiser Permanente expand statewide so they become kind of a blanket coverage. I'll say that uh, he said he was not yet in conversation with Kaiser specifically, specifically about that. I think it's a really critical question, though, to ask Caroline if any county in this country uh, has gone without an insurer altogether. That is to say, have, has there ever been a true lapse or are solutions always found so far? So far, solutions have always been found. Uh, We've had this threat occur in previous years on a very limited basis, and uh, regulators have always gotten another health plan to step into those markets. So um, we've never been in the situation, but the threat is definitely greater this year than it's ever been before. What can a state do to sort of sweeten the pot to attract another insurer if one leaves? I mean, you've looked at at other insurers in Colorado like Rocky Mountain Health Plans. What what indication do you have, if any, in this state that someone else might pick up the slack, so to speak? Well, I I think that uh, certainly that would be the first route that the the state would take to try to expand coverage, reach out to some of those local health plans that are deeply entrenched in the market uh, and maybe more apt to stay in and even expand their footprint. One of the challenges with Rocky Mountain Health Plan, Kaiser Permanente and others is many of these plans are uh, tied closely to their provider groups, the physicians and hospitals that are delivering services. Mm. And for a plan to go statewide, they need to be able to build a network of providers across the whole state. So um, not all of the local Colorado plans may be equipped to do that throughout the region. And in fact, it may need to be sort of a patchwork approach where uh, if you could get multiple insurers to expand their footprint to a few more counties than they're in, uh, perhaps the state can cover it that way. Kind of knitting together a solution. (laughs) Precisely. Why would Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield be the last carrier in this area of Colorado on the West? slope. I mean, why are they offering plans now when no other insurer wants to get into this market? Sure. Well, Anthem, as well as the independent Blue Cross Blue Shield plans that operate in many other states around the country, have historically been the number one provider of individual insurance, insurance that's not sold through an employer group plan. And that's been a huge part of their business model. Historically, they've been entrenched in it. They know how to put together products that are attractive to consumers and and hopefully uh, affordable. And so, you know, this is really, they're the backbone of this insurance market across the country. And it's it's uh, not just Colorado where you see Anthem as the only carrier in many counties around the country. Okay. So they have a, a special relationship, if you will, with these individual plans. I want to say that CPR has requested an interview with Anthem. The company said that it wanted to submit its decision to the state, again, the deadline looming Monday before commenting. They did say in a written statement that they are, quote, maintaining an active dialogue with state leaders and regulators regarding the stability of Colorado's individual market and our participation in Connect for Health Colorado. That's the state's exchange. Uh, But what what has changed this year that has made companies like Anthem reevaluate their participation? What's the calculation right now? Well, it's a complicated one. We are four years into these Obamacare markets uh, existing. And at this point, we continue to see lower than expected enrollment in these markets, as well as higher than anticipated health needs among the people that are enrolled. So you've got a relatively small, relatively sick, high need population. And that has made it really hard for insurers to develop and price health plans that uh, are affordable and attractive and also can be profitable. So um, plans continue to struggle. 
And this year, we have the added complication of a high degree of political uncertainty, um, both due to the negotiations going on in Congress about ACA repeal, as well as uncertainty about whether the subsidies in this market are going to continue to be paid. And those subsidies are critical for most enrollees to afford their insurance. So you've got health plans sort of looking out at the market saying, uh, I don't know if this market's going to be here a year or two down the line. I don't know if my consumers, my enrollees are going to be able to afford this coverage. And do I want to continue to sustain losses or the risk of losses if I uh, don't have some future upside? And, and that's a hard thing for any business to decide. Is what I hear you saying that uh, Republicans in Congress who are saying Obamacare isn't working, it's a failure, we need something else, that 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 very dialogue is adding to the uncertainty that might mean failures in the system. That's absolutely the case. And, you know, as an insurer, they were playing the long game. They were thinking about this as a new growing market, and they were willing to uh, take losses and and bear a lot of risk for long-term gain to really build a footprint in this market. And if they don't think that the market's going to be around, it's hard to argue as a business decision that they should stay in uh, with the degree of uncertainty that's looming in future years. You talked about unhealthy populations being a part of this and the the risk being part of the calculation, there was a provision in Obamacare to deal with this, something called risk corridors. Uh, Republicans in Congress referred to these as, as bailouts for insurance companies and didn't fund these risk corridors to the tune that Obamacare originally called for. Is Is that adding to the calculus here? That is adding, and there's another program called reinsurance that also underpinned these markets and made them more attractive for insurers. Um, Both of those programs uh, officially ended last year, and we saw big premium increases in 2017 as a result of their end. And unfortunately, we believe that that risk still hasn't stabilized. And in fact, we're probably going to see big premium increases again in 2018 as soon as rates are filed next week. One point of contention, too, is what are called cost-sharing reductions. Uh, lots of uh, heady language here in the healthcare realm, but can, can you briefly explain what that is? Yeah, so the Affordable Care Act included um, both premium subsidies to reduce the monthly payments that people make to access insurance and what we call cost-sharing reductions to uh enhance those products to reduce deductibles, reduce co-pays and co-insurance for services. And they're very important for many relatively low-income people that are enrolled in these markets in order to make them uh, be able to afford accessing to the, accessing their care. Those are at the heart of a uh, lawsuit that's, that's brewing at the federal level right now. They haven't been properly appropriated by Congress. And Fundamentally, it's up to the Trump administration to decide whether they're going to continue to pay those cost-sharing reductions. They've been uh, unwilling to make a long-term commitment about whether those cost-sharing reductions will continue to flow to the health plans. Mm. And without them, uh, coverage would become unaffordable very quickly for many, many millions of enrollees. And that, again, is something that is a a huge concern to the plans that are participating in the market. I mean, essentially, Congress here isn't funding those subsidies as much as Obamacare had committed. Uh, Here's what Colorado's Insurance Commissioner Marguerite Salazar told CPR's health reporter John Daly about the importance 
of those cost-sharing reductions, those government subsidies for insurers. Actually, three plans told me that they would get out of the individual market if the cost-sharing reductions were taken away, if the individual mandate was done away with. They said, we can't stay in the market. We will get out. Of course, in April, you had Anthem's CEO talking about the possibility of the company exiting the market. He spoke on an investor call, very public forum. Is it possible that all of this is just about trying to put political pressure on Congress and the president to restore these subsidies or to bring more stability? Is is this political theater in some regards? Well, I think there are many things going on. I, I think that uh, plans are very seriously considering their participation. And it's not just theater because we've seen lots of insurers exiting in other states. So we know it's a, it's a real decision. Um, but absolutely, the health plans are also trying to communicate uh, to the Trump administration and other federal officials that uh, these decisions that they are making have a big impact on plans business and on their future decisions to participate. So political pressure is one of many components here. Uh, on top of, you know, trying to really decide where they're going to enroll people next year. I want to say, though, that Anthem, this company that is deciding whether or not to stay uh, on the exchange in Colorado, is having a great year. Forbes reported that the company's profits were up 44 percent in the first quarter. Why would this be so contentious if, if a company like Anthem is seeing profit? Sure. Well, What we have to keep in mind is that these uh, exchanges are really a small fraction of the total business that any given health plan is doing. Nationwide, there's only about 10 million people in the exchanges, about 200,000 in Colorado. And so uh, this business line could be losing money while other business lines are doing better. Okay, so it's only a part of the pie. Uh, Meanwhile, insurance premiums on the exchange are expected to go up again in Colorado next year, as much as 25 percent, according to the insurance commissioner. I realize you could probably write a dissertation on this question, but briefly, what can we say about why premiums are are going up? In addition, I suppose, to the uncertainty you've already talked about. Well, I do think it comes back to those factors. I think uh, we had expected that as these exchange markets grew, more and more young, healthy people would enroll, and they would help to balance what we call the risk pool. So you've got people uh, who are sicker and have higher health needs and people who are younger and healthier, uh, and they together bring down premiums. But we really haven't seen those young, healthy people enrolling at nearly the numbers that policymakers had hoped for. And as a result, premiums continue to go up in the market uh, in order to cover the costs for people who have really serious pre-existing conditions and and are depending on this insurance. I'll say that Obamacare supporters would contend that out-of-pocket expenses would have gone up more without the health care law. And uh, last year, about two-thirds of patients on Colorado's exchange qualified for subsidies, so they didn't pay the full increases. Caroline, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Caroline Pearson, Senior Vice President at the nonprofit health consulting company Avalier Health. We talked about the upcoming deadline. It's Monday for health insurers to notify the state whether they will offer plans on the health exchange next year. Coming up, your feedback in loud and clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The president's decision to pull out of a global climate treaty and his proposed budget cuts to research are a blow to Colorado climate scientists. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood introduces us to some of their work. 
The backbone of international climate change research is the world's long-term carbon dioxide record. Some places go back decades. At a remote outpost near Boulder, the data stretch back 50 years. Any day up on top of the mountain is better than a day at your desk, even if you can't feel your fingers. Climate technician Jen Morse walks through 30-mile-per-hour winds on icy tundra. Her job is the result of a partnership between the University of Colorado at Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. All these years later, measuring carbon dioxide is hard work. In early summer, Niawat Ridge near Nederland is still covered in snow, and it whips around her. We know that CO2 is going up because of sites like this. And there's sites like this all over the world. Carbon dioxide, or CO2, varied at levels below 280 parts per million for hundreds of thousands of years. But that number began to rise with the Industrial Revolution. It's the direct result of burning fossil fuels like coal and natural gas into the atmosphere. All those heat-trapping gases are making the planet warmer, including here in Colorado. Is that our little shack? That is it. The hut is the size of a one-car garage. It's buried in snow. Morse pries open the frozen door. On one side is a desk with small machines. A large shelf holds dozens of glass bottles. This is kind of the magic, these guys. The bottles are fragile. Morse hooks up two to an air intake machine. Two is an important number because scientists need to monitor samples for variability. They watch those numbers closely. Morse started this job seven years ago after a stint as a ski patroller. She got her undergrad degree in her early 30s. Now she's married and has a three-year-old son. Her work on Niwat Ridge every week is like being in a washing machine, working in high winds, rain, and snow. And I think the other thing you get used to, which is interesting, is to slow down a little. Because your brain, I really just don't think your brain works as quick. That means triple-checking that bottles have been correctly connected to the machine. If they're not, the samples are worthless. All right, so there we go. It finished filling. Morse writes down when the sample was taken and other facts like wind speed and temperature. And then we have our sample. And then the only other thing we have to do is not fall and break it as we ski back down. The air samples will get analyzed for carbon dioxide and up to 50 other gases. Global air monitoring is a steady drumbeat in a world where proposed federal policy is shifting as quickly as the Niawat Ridge wind. Last week, Trump announced his intentions to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, and proposed budget cuts by the president are expected to target climate change research. Our role in this is to tell you, yes, this is how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. This is how much methane is in the atmosphere. This is how it's changing. Climatologist Jim White directs Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder. His institute runs the Niwat Ridge Research Station. He explains many see the weekly collection of carbon dioxide levels as essential. President Donald Trump proposed a 22 percent cut in next year's budget to the NOAA department that funds this work. White says that's prompted some deep discussions. Most of us never thought we would see a time when um, basic monitoring would be something that could be on the table in terms of cuts. Both White and the head of NOAA's Global Monitoring Division in Boulder say their budgets have been on a diet for years. Millions in cuts could mean paring down scientific measurements or firing workers. Inside a windowless lab at the federal NOAA building in Boulder, physical scientist Pat Lang puts a half dozen glass bottles on a carousel to test CO2 levels. These are from... 
Mongolia, Argentina, and Alaska. Right? They come from all around the world. Lang's measured carbon dioxide levels for three decades. She constantly checks this data as the computer reads it. And also, I'm also checking this flask is on this port. If I, if I click this one instead of this one, then it's going to think it's in Mongolia rather than Argentina. Scientists say the rate of carbon dioxide increase has been unprecedented in recent years. Peter Tans leads research scientists at NOAA's Carbon Cycle Research Group in Boulder. The group has its finger on the pulse of carbon dioxide emissions across the world. The bottom line message is that we collectively, we humans, are overwhelming natural systems. This is risky business. Tan says right now half of carbon emissions are absorbed by land, vegetation, and the ocean. The other half is accumulating in the atmosphere. Tan says he doesn't know how long that will continue. They have to go to zero, these emissions. We have to fully decarbonize our energy system. Now you can say, wow, that's a lot of money. That's going to be expensive. Now actually it's a great thing because you're talking about a lot of jobs. And when do we need to do that? Now, right now. But that's not how President Donald Trump sees it. In his remarks last week, Trump said that the Paris Climate Accord would cost the United States millions of jobs. This includes 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, not what we need. Believe me, this is not what we need. Environmental groups dispute Trump's data. The president's views on climate change are difficult to pin down. Years ago, he called global warming a hoax. After the election, he softened that view, saying there's a connection between human activities and climate change. On Niwot Ridge, Jen Morse carefully packs the two glass bottles and soft packaging in a large backpack. Recent events have been a lot to take in. Trump's move to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, the proposed budget cuts. Because basically we're just talking about physics. So he's almost sort of saying, I don't believe in physics. For Morse, physics explains how cars and TVs work. It also explains why more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means a hotter planet. She's hopeful the long-term carbon dioxide record will last longer than a four-year election cycle. And if we just have someone in office that wants to say whatever he wants to say for four years, it's not great, but it's not going to change the way I view what I do or the way I view the science. And with that, Morse pops on her backpack, clicks on her skis, and starts her trip down the mountain. In her backpack are two bottles full of air. That's carbon dioxide data for just one week. It'll get added to the site's long-term record, data that span 50 years and counting. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. We air your feedback and update stories in a regular segment called Loud and Clear. And let's start with an update. I spoke with Denver Mayor Michael Hancock a few weeks ago. He'd sent a letter to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement about sensitive locations. These are places like churches and schools where ICE agents historically try not to make arrests. Mayor Hancock had asked ICE to consider courthouses sensitive locations. The mayor said agents' presence there makes Denver less safe. We can document today nine witnesses, victims of domestic violence, who backed out because of their fear of walking into courthouses. That makes you and me more unsafe, everyone who calls this city home. And now we have uh, perpetrators of these crimes who will not be held accountable. 
Well, recently, ICE responded to the mayor, saying agents will continue to pick people up at courthouses whom they believe to be in the country illegally. In a letter, an ICE official wrote that courthouses are safe places for agents to make arrests because people have already gone through security screenings. A statement from the mayor's office in return says the Hancock administration, quote, fundamentally disagrees with the decision. Last week, we learned about fires and explosions at oil and gas operations in Colorado. A new report from the Colorado School of Public Health found there were at least 116 between 2006 and 2015. Michael Nevue of Denver felt it was important to note that some incidents in the oil and gas industry are unavoidable. That's because industry workers deal with, quote, volatile products. In an email, he writes, it would be good to remind listeners sometimes that essentially nothing that they own, use, wear, or eat would be presently available without oil and gas. Maybe this will change someday, but to indulge in a fantasy that it's anytime soon is not serious reporting. Not too long ago, I interviewed Holocaust survivor Jack Adler, who lives in Denver. He told us he has two birthdays. The first is the day he was literally born. The second came in 1945, when he was liberated from the Dachau Death March. He described the scene for us. Tanks, trucks, jeeps arrived. And when they saw us, they stopped right in front of us. We didn't know who they were. I never saw an American military vehicle. One of the officers got on a hood of a jeep with a bullhorn, and he says, This is the United States Army. You are all free. After that conversation aired, Surrey Norris of Denver emailed us. She said her husband's grandfather, Guy William Norris, was in the American Army and helped liberate the Dachau camp in April 1945. Norris said he didn't talk much about the war, but she has visited Dachau and said it was, quote, painfully moving. She writes, hearing Jack Adler's story was also painfully moving, yet enlightening and encouraging and surprisingly personal for us. Jamie Walker of Montrose also had a strong reaction to that interview. In an email, Walker writes, as I listened to this piece at work today, I fought back tears. And Walter Plywoski, a Holocaust survivor who lives in Boulder and who's been on our show, responded to Jack Adler's interview with the following comment. Those were the days, my friend, and we thought they would never end. They are lyrics from a song Plywoski wrote called The Nazi Cabaret, which he shared with us. And here are a few more lines. We starved and froze and later we'd bleed. We'd stand in frost hoping for some feed. We lived our lives only in the now and fought each other for extra bread, for we were young and old and soon be dead. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Bluegrass fans in Colorado are taking note of two up-and-comers, sisters Megan and Maddie Cody. Hazel, it's your birthday today. Daddy, you can make my birthday. I'm sorry, but the train was too late. Is the weather okay? I'll see you next year. I know we'll meet again someday. They perform as the Cody sisters. Megan sings lead, and Maddie wrote this track. The surprising part is that Maddie is just 12, her sister Megan is 14. They live in Parker, 
and perform all over the front range this summer. They have a new album out as well. And welcome, Cody sisters. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Nice to see you. This song is called Hazel and Maddie. How did it come about? Tell me about writing it. Um, I think so. When I write songs, they sort of just come out of the blue, and I just like get ideas for them. And I'm like, I have to write this down so I don't forget it. And then sometimes the song just writes itself, and then it just keeps going. What is Hazel about? Um, it's about how a dad or a dad who's always on business or away from home and the daughter is like missing the dad but he's like missing out on the important part of her life hmm. but it's interesting this is not autobiographical because in fact your dad steve is in our yeah. green room he accompanied <laughs> you here he plays music with you he's basically your manager so th- they're not all literally about your life Maddie. Yeah, they're mostly focused on the opposite of my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take your experience and make it a bit sadder, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Okay. Uh, how did you both get into music, Megan? Um, well, our dad played um, guitar around the house a lot as we were growing up, and we wanted to be just like him, so we um, got guitars for our birthdays, and... Um, we just started to learn. We started, um, he just would teach us a few things, and then we got um, other teachers that we took lessons from for a while. And did it feel like you were forced into this at certain points? Like, I remember never wanting to do piano lessons, or did you take to it really quickly? Oh, no, not at all. We love, not not at all that we didn't like it, but <laughs> we love it so much, and Um, If we ever didn't want to do it, then we wouldn't have to at all. But we choose to do it, and we really love what we do. Maddie, would you say that's true for you? Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Uh, You play at at jam circles, at music festivals, I know, a lot, with people who are significantly older than you. (laughs) Do you get comments like, oh, how cute? And, And what do you think of comments like that if you do get them? Yeah, we get comments a lot like that and we don't really like to have those comments because we don't really focus on our age and like how cute we are or something we just focus on how good we are and like just practicing stuff like that Mm. yeah we we really appreciate everyone like giving us compliments and stuff and I think that when people say that we're cute they really mean well but when we hear that we think oh, they think we're cute because we're kids that are playing music, but really we work really hard at what we do. So um, we um, appreciate it when people are like, wow, your music sounds really good instead of, whoa, you're so cute. Mm. Yeah, and there's, I don't know, there's something like vaguely sexist about you're so cute too. I don't know if you feel yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You say you work really hard. What does that look like on a daily basis? Like what? how do you balance music and the rest of of being a kid, Maddie? Um. Well, in the summer, I normally wake up and I practice and then I go about my day and then we do band practice at night. The summer is probably a little easier than the school year. Mm -hmm. The school year is pretty hard because we live like an hour from school. So like we don't have much time to practice. Well, also, I'll say like we go to Denver School of the Arts. Right. um, And at that school, we audition to get in for guitar and that's our major. So we get to practice guitar for an hour and a half um, every day when we're in school. So we still get that practice in, but it's just 
a little bit hard. It's a little bit harder to balance out everything during school, but we still、um, have fun and get to practice and everything. One of your influences is Bob Dylan, and you cover his song "Don't Think Twice." It's one of my favorites on this new album. It's really nice to hear a lighter, brighter version of that because the other one can leave me so depressed. <laughs>、uh, and you have such beautiful harmony, the two of you. Is that true in real life, by the way? Like, is it beyond the vocal harmony? Do you two mostly get along? Oh yeah, for sure. We're best friends, and we and like playing music together is always really fun for us. And yeah. <laughs> What's your approach to covering other people's work? Like, what what did you want to bring to that song, Maddie? That、um, is really well known. Sort of more of a different feel, like more of our bluegrass sort of way, but like sort of have the same.、Um, I don't know how to describe it. Same, like emotion to it, maybe.、Mm. Yeah. You wanted to carry the same emotional weights, but with your own musical spin. Yeah. So it's way more、mm. bluegrassy. Yeah, because we have a banjo in it, also. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> How did you first get exposed to bluegrass? And I wonder what you thought of it the first time you heard it. Was there any part of you that just thought this sounds like old people's music? <laughs> <laughs> um. So we got exposed to it at a pretty early age. So we. And we just wanted to be like our dad, so we didn't really care what music he liked. And then we started really <laughs> liking it, and so we just grew up with it. Yeah, like none of our friends, or very few of our friends that we go to school with, like this music,、um, or at least all of it. So,、um, and since we started listening to it at an early age, it like, I guess, didn't matter. As much to us what other people thought of what we listened to. Oh,、huh. yeah. but it sounds like they've they've vocalized that to you. They've told you. This is weird music that you listen to or that you play.、Mm, yeah, sort of. Well, <laughs> <Okay> . <laughs>、uh, I don't know. They're nice about it. They just we never listen to it to make them like listen to music they don't like.、Oh. How thoughtful of you. <laughs>、uh, so this album you have called Strings is about half covers, half originals. I wonder, given your age, if you've thought about going on shows like America's Got Talent or The Voice. They seem like natural outlets to get yourself a national audience. Megan, what do you think?、Um, so we have gotten a lot of people saying, "Oh, you guys should be on The Voice because they would love you there." And、um, what we think when we hear that, we appreciate it a lot that people think that we would go on it. But、um, we really do music not because we want to be like famous or anything like that. We just want to、um, like spread our music to. Like people that want to listen to it. Okay, that sounds nice. But you, there's no part of you that wants to be famous, Megan. Uh, I mean, what we do is we play our music for the people that want to listen to it, and if a lot of people like it, then I'm okay with a lot of people wanting to listen to our music. But our goal isn't really to be like popular or famous. Maddie, 
any part of you want to be famous? So when I was really young, that's pretty much all I wanted to do. But like almost everything changed since then to where I just want to make people happy, like the people who want to listen to us, and just to be good for us. <laughs> where do you see yourself going then? I mean, would you want to pursue music into college, you know, like the Berkeley College of Music, something like that? Yeah, I definitely want to do music for the rest of my life. I don't know um, about a full-time career, though I would love to do that. I'm also really interested in, like, math and science, and so maybe something, like, with music, and so I can incorporate a few other things into that. Oh. How about for you, Maddie? Um, pretty much the same thing. I want to do, like, a part-time job of that and a part-time of other things. What are your other interests? Um, so this is going to sound sort of weird. I'm <laughs> interested in, well, it's pretty much just overall nature, but I like trees and wood and like everything about that sort of thing. Hmm. You could become a dendrologist, a tree scientist. I would love that. Okay. <laughs> We're talking to the Cody sisters. They're a rising bluegrass act based in Parker. Uh, Maddie, you, as I said, uh, do a lot of the writing, and, and uh, you've got another original on this album. It's called Abandoned Gas Station. I didn't have a lot of money to take her. What's the audience like for bluegrass in Colorado? Um, well, it depends what part of Colorado we're in, but... Where, are, where the, are you biggest? Um, a lot of the places that we play in are, like, up in Lyons or Boulder or Golden, like, those areas. I think people appreciate the bluegrass music a lot. Um, and then sort of where we're from, um, down in Parker, a lot of people um, really appreciate it, but I think that it's not really their type yeah as hmm. much in your own backyard very quickly yeah. maddie what would be your dream venue to play where would you love to play um it's a hard question i really like playing in like theaters but like where everyone comes to see us mm. and like they, oh i got one okay okay <laughs> um so we go to this festival every year um rocky grass bluegrass festival it's in lions yeah and it's a really cool place, and I it would be really fun to play there. To play yeah. there? You've, you've yeah. got as audience members. Yeah, we I go see. every year. So the Cody sisters, Megan and Maddie, they're from Parker. They'll be at the Rocky Grass Academy in Lyons this summer. And we have links to their dozen or so other front-range shows at cprnews.org. Finally, here's a song by Megan and Maddie's dad, Steve Cody. She doesn't change the strings from the album's strings. It's about a girl whose dad has died, and all she has left is the strings on his guitar. She walks into her daddy's garage, sleep on, I'll 
Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. WNBA players have dunked just a handful of times in games, but a teenager at Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora does it as well, and she's gone viral. Now, Francesca Belibi is also an international champion with USA Basketball's under-16 team. They won the FIBA Women's Americas Championship in Argentina this past weekend. Belibi and her coach, Carl Maddy, talked with NPR's Nathan Heffel in February about being the first girl to dunk in a Colorado high school game and how she got into the sport. I've been watching basketball since I was maybe six or seven. Um, the NBA, college, and it's just been something I was like, wow, I could be good at that. I, I, I'm pretty tall. Um, so I always asked my parents and kind of bothered them about it for a couple of years, but um, they're super busy. So I was like, okay, I'll just wait till high school. And you do wait until high school. And this whole thing begins with you attending an open gym session at Regis. Coach, how did you first hear about Francesca and her dunking abilities? So I was at home and my phone beeped and my two assistant coaches text me and said, do you know who Francesca Belibi is? And I put back no. And well, she's dunking in the gym. I said, send me a video. And I saw her dunk this green ball. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I called my other assistant, Ross, and said, we got a girl dunking. And uh, went from there. What do you do when, when you actually realize this is a thing? She's actually dunking. Amazement. Because I've, I've been at All-American Camp and I've seen some of the women dunk. Um, but we're talking Brittany Griner, 6'7", Candace Parker, 6'5". And we should say that these are professional uh, basketball players. And I went to the next open gym with Ross, my assistant, and said, I got to see this. And so I introduced myself to Fran. And um, at the end of the open gym, I said, can I see? So I gave her the little uh, green ball, and she went up and actually flipped her wrist and dunked it. So all the girls were screaming, obviously. (laughs) And um, I put my hand up against her hand because I thought, her hands look so big around this ball. And sure enough, she has these very, very large hands. And I thought, well, try palming a volleyball. So I gave her a volleyball, and it was nothing. And that's when my assistant Ross and I said, if we can actually teach this young lady how to play basketball, I'm telling her that the sky's the limit because I've never seen somebody her age do what she's doing at that age, 14 years old, but never play basketball. So it's rare for a 14-year-old. It's rare for a 14-year-old girl. It's rare for a woman to do this. Why is that so rare? I just think, one, the hands are smaller. They can't palm the basketball, so they have to use two hands to flush it. And and Fran can palm a ball. She can palm men's basketballs. What's it like working with someone like Francesca since you've not only coached her in games here in Colorado but around the country too? It's a joy. She makes it so simple. But you're talking about her first varsity game when she was in California. And she she gets the ball at center and just runs full speed and makes a layup without dribbling. <laughs> and... I look at my assistant, all the girls burst out laughing, and then my assistant gets upset because here's a young lady that doesn't even understand the rules of the game yet, let alone the little things like reading screens. or The the game of basketball is very hard to pick up, so it's a testament, first off, to how smart the kid is because when we had the open house last year in November, she's at the math table, 
and she's not at the basketball table. And I'm like, Fran, get over here. We're trying to encourage young eighth graders to come to Regis. And she picked up the rules pretty quick, was doing 360 passes to the corner where I said, just make the easy pass. Like she, the stuff she saw on the NBA or, or whatever was how she learned how to play the game. Or as a coach, you're trying to teach, like she said, double dribble, three seconds. Those fundamentals. Yeah, fundamentals. Before we get to something Jordan-esque. <laughs> did, did you know what you were doing was rare for a woman to do? No, I really didn't. Um, I thought, like, guys dunk, so, like, maybe I figured girls could dunk, too. Well, because you'd, you'd been seeing her dunk in practice. What happened when she finally made that dunk in gameplay? Yeah, we're playing Grand Junction on a Friday night, and she was out for about three weeks with a sprained ankle. Oh. And during that period, we lost a game, and obviously I was very frustrated not having Fran, but um, I think Fran was frustrated with not being able to to go on the court. So like she said earlier about wanting to get out there, I'm sure if she was just exploding inside, she got the steal and my assistant turned to me and said, she's going and oh. she just took off. And probably the, you know, the most amazing thing was the team because yeah. she took off and the whole team ran to me and the game's still going on. Right. They all so ran I, off to you. <laughs> I'm running on the court to go time out. I didn't want to get a technical foul because all the girls rushed the court. Take us into that moment. You, you're you're on the court. You've got the ball. You're going to go for it. Take us yeah. there. My mind was kind of blank, and I just, like, palmed it, and then I went up for it. And um, I didn't think it went in because normally on the first the first times I dunk, the ball, like, goes off the back of the rim and, like, flies back. Uh-huh. Um, so, I, like, I had to, like, check to see if the ball went through, and all my teammates were, like, standing there, like, all wide, wide-eyed, like, open mouth, like, what the heck? We got to the bench and like everyone was cheering and yelling and the uh, the announcer said something about like first girl to dunk and the crowd applauded applauded and everything and it was just it was just funny but um it was cool <laughs> and that's the video that everyone's seen where where you've dunked for the first time right yeah, yeah we were we went across the street for dinner the coaches go out and we sat at the table eating pizza and Sports Center went up and my assistant from years past as the head coach of Castleview. So Matt took the clip and sent it off to Max Preps. And then it hit ESPN, whatever it hit, but we were sitting there having pizza and we looked up and top 10 plays, just every athletic person just or anyone puts on TV and so we're watching it and five, four, three, and all of a sudden, what the heck, there's my girl. <laughs> and she's number one. And at that point, um, I think that's when it really hit me, the impact because the amount of college coaches, um, one in the morning, I turned the phone off. My phone died. And then for about five days after that, um, like you said, it went viral. It went to five different languages around, around the world. People from Europe, I'm from Canada, all my friends back home. Is that your kid? I was like, yeah. You can see that dunk at cprnews.org. And coach, you've been contacted by over 200 colleges with division one basketball programs about Francesca. That's unusual, right? I've had a lot of girls go division one. I read just, we've had 32. I've never in my life have had that many coaches call, hey, we got an offer. Hey, if she doesn't want to go there, we have an offer. Um, in fact, yesterday I didn't tell her, but she was uh, voted player of the year in the conference, which is huge, especially for our conference. Now, now why is it so huge? Because, of course, I mean, well, I'm assuming because she's brand new at this. <laughs> exactly. Um, the past winners have all been high major Division One players. And for a 15-year-old sophomore to be chosen, pretty incredible. How does that feel for you? <laughs> it's cool. I mean – couldn't do it without my teammates. Like it's a lot thanks to them, but I guess a lot to me too. So it's been cool. It's cool. 
Well, what about being a role model? People look up to you. Literally. I know. And also, <laughs> you know, figuratively. I mean, it's it's funny. I know, like, some of my sister's teammates on her club team are like, like they they all love me. And it's just, like, interesting. And I know my mom talks about it all the time, like, with this dunk. Now I'm, like, giving other little girls, like, hope that maybe they could do it, too. And they all just really look up to me. And she always says that... um my attitude and how I act like that that'll that's what goes behind it and if I'm a role model now I have to like make sure my attitude matches it Francesca coach thanks so much for being here thank Thank you you. Francesca Belibi and her coach Carl Maddie we spoke after Belibi became the first girl to dunk in a Colorado high school game I'm Ryan Warner this is Colorado Matters from CPR News